With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So, Matt, do you know why we haven't really had any aliens visit our solar system? Uh... Well, no. Why? Because they looked at the Yelp reviews. We've only got one star. everybody and welcome to the graveyard thank you for joining us tonight my name is adam and my name is matt now pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is graveyard tales (laughs) all right matt how you doing tonight brother well i'm doing very well adam how are you um i'm wondering what what are you doing I'm using my broadcasting voice. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I can do that in post. You don't have to. <laughs> so, so yeah. So if uh, if you're a member of our Facebook group, there was a, a pretty lengthy thread a, a while back about uh, our voices. <laughs> Matt decided. I decided. To, <laughs> well, maybe I need to sound more more broadcasting. No. Yeah, you know, it like, needs to I, get more professional. Sound like oh, sound like Darn Pardo or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just let me do it in post. It'll be better that way. <laughs> so we don't really have much as a, a intro here for y'all. Um, we got some new Patreon episodes up. So if you're a Patreon member, you will have heard those. If you haven't, go check them out. Um, one of them is I gave you an update on my California trip that I'm back from now. Um, another one is a Matt episode, and then we got another one that either will be out or is coming out uh, that I did. Um, so go check them out. We got yeah. we're dropping several Patreon episodes because we were so dark at the beginning of this month due to vacations right. and everything. Um. But if you're not a member, uh, a Patreon member, um, you can go over there and sign up and get all the bonus content that we're giving you. You know, you can $1 a month, $5 a month, you know, and even at the $1 level, you get all the shows. So it's not like you have to pledge $150 a month to get the shows. You can just do a dollar a month and get all our bonus content. But you can pledge $150 a month. We just want to make that clear. Right. You, you can. You can. I mean, <laughs> if you've got that much, we, we will we will gladly take that as a donation, but you don't have to. You can get it all for a dollar. Yeah. So thank you, everybody that has done that. A dollar, $150 doesn't matter. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. But I do want to officially extend one very... Special thank you to Rebecca. Um, I did. This has been in the group. Um, if you hadn't, if you missed the picture, you can go back through and find it. Um, but Rebecca had contacted us a while back about doing some custom shoes for us. And 
and you know, Adam got his pair a while ago, but since I have, I, I wear clown shoes, freakishly large. Feet. Yes. Um, uh, she, she had to get my shoes special, but I, I actually got them in my possession today. They've been sitting in the, uh, in the PO box for a, almost two weeks because Adam's been gone and I don't have a key. <laughs> yeah. I forgot to, to leave my get, key to get them. <laughs> Um, but they're they're in my possession right now, and they are absolutely phenomenal. I I am just looking at them. I'm just floored. Uh, and thank you so much, Rebecca. You are a, an amazing talent, and to to integrate um, two things that I love this show and the Grateful Dead into one design was. It, I'm I'm still I'm just amazed. So yeah, thank you so much. They they are they're awesome. I I love mine and. She didn't put Grateful Dead on mine, gratefully. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not the deadhead that Matt is, but uh, she did do our logo and stuff on mine. So we love them and can't thank you enough, Rebecca. Um, but Matt, what are we talking about tonight? Okay, so we're going back over the pond again um, to uh, to the UK to talk about two different things that are combined into one thing. The uh, the Hellfire Caves, and it's serving as the meeting place of the Hellfire Club. Right. Now, I had the Hellfire Club last week. You know, it's a sandwich with, like, ghost peppers and mm-hmm. Carolina Reapers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then I had the Hellfire something else later that night. Right, so. right. The, the Hellfire butt. <laughs> now, if anybody does make that, they need to give us, or at least Matt, right. credit for that. Right. So TM that, I named I named your sandwich. Yep. TM, TM, TM. It's a Graveyard Tales uh, copyright. Um, so let, let's get into this a little bit. Now, y'all all know I'm the, the history buff here, so I've got some history for you. Now, the Hellfire Caves are in West Wycombe, and it, we're talking about the, the England area the england area the england area um <laughs> it's kind of halfway between london and oxford right and it's uh, a network of chalk and flint caverns that are in the buckinghamshire 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 mm-hmm. buckinghamshire buckinghamshire england uh area and they were made famous because of this sordid past that they have and they're named after the Hellfire Club, which we will talk about here in a little bit. But according to most accepted accounts of the Hellfire Caves, English politician Sir Francis Dashwood commissioned this project in 1748, and it was supposedly to supply chalk for a five-kilometer road between West Wycombe and High Wycombe. Now, this was supposedly in an attempt to combat poverty in the area so it would provide jobs to farm workers and impoverished people and all that stuff he's making jobs making jobs dig my caves exactly dig my flint caves well the workers were employed at like one shilling per day which is enough to sustain a family in that time um to mine chalk and flint you know on his estate well they were all dug by hand so these caves are regarded as an incredible feat of engineering which they are i mean we'll post a picture of them so you can kind of see the layout of them but they are quite impressive in how 
far they go and all that stuff. But they don't, the layout doesn't look like a normal chalk mine. You know, you wouldn't. I, I don't really have any point well, of reference for a chalk mine, to well, be honest with you. I would say it wouldn't have some of these amphitheaters and stuff in well, it. Well, true. You I know? would imagine not. <laughs> um, but the the tunnel and all of the adjoining chambers and halls were dug a quarter of a mile into the earth. And this was directly beneath a church. Now, the network consists of a main hall, which branches off into rooms such as the, quote, Steward's Cave, a banquet hall, Franklin's Cave, which was named after Dashwood's friend and Hellfire guest, Benjamin Franklin. That's right. The same um, one. Which we will talk about a little later. Um, the tunnel ends in a chamber known as the Inner Temple. Now, this reached, this was reached after you had to cross a small underground stream that they named the River Styx. Now, outside the entrance to the caves, there was this fake facade that was built out of irregular pieces of flint, and they wanted it to look like a Gothic church. So the outside of these caves looked like a Gothic church. So none of this sounds like a chalk mine to me. <laughs> no. It, it seems a little suspicious to be a chalk mine. Um, but walls were also built around the facade to create like a courtyard area for it. Now, the theory that the caves were dug out for mining is pretty questionable because the Chilton Hills flint bed overlays this area and you don't have to really mine it like that. All you really have to do is make these little small open flint dells, as they call them. Um, and there's a bunch of them in the area, so you can just kind of dig down and get some. You don't have to go through this extensive network of tunnels. So the question is always asked, could it be that Sir Francis had another reason for creating the underground network of rooms? Well, of course he did. Of course he did. So <laughs> this other reason is most likely the Hellfire Club for their rituals. Now, the Hellfire Club would hold meetings in the inner temple, sharing drunken toasts, contests of wits, and uh, some crazy stories that they had. Well, the spirit of the club was firmly pagan, and the gatherings often also included mock rituals and all manner of what they considered bohemian indulgence. This is not like the song. Um, I see a little silhouette of a club. Like the, but he liked the remix. Yeah. You know? Hellfire club, fire club. Um, so the given the Hellfire Club's anti-establishment think thought processes and the literal underground nature of the club, accounts of occult and criminal happenings have sprung up over hundreds of years, but neither history nor the caves themselves lend concrete evidence to any of these stories. But we do have some stories that you might find interesting coming up a little bit later. Well, it was a secret club. Right. So if it's holding up to its name, you're not going to know what's going on. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they didn't really keep like notes. I don't blab about our secret club That's that right. we have. That's you know, We're not telling nobody. No. Don't write this down. Right. It could be used against us. Exactly. I mean, because you got to think, too, Dashwood was a member of parliament. Yeah. So, you know. Having this secret club, and it, and it's not like it was so secret that people didn't know about it, but they had no idea what was really going on. And 
you know, I guess in a lot of ways, it was just kind of thought of this super exclusive men's club. But, you know, in, in the early 1700s, these wealthy people, they did what they wanted and you really didn't question it. I mean, certainly not for just common folk. Right. I mean, and, and truthfully, they were more worried about where their next meal was coming from as opposed to worried about what some some kook on the hill was building. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, look, he's going to pay me a shilling a day to dig this crap out of here. I'll do it. Yeah, I don't care what it's for. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we need to talk about the Hellfire Club a little bit. And it, it started in Ireland, in the Dublin area, and ended up moving to the Hellfire Caves later on. But let's talk about it. So for centuries, the hilltop of Mount Pillar Hill, or Mont Pillier, as I've heard it pronounced too, which is south-southwest of Dublin, and it overlooked the city, was occupied by a Neolithic passage grave, which is burial chambers that are covered in stone, usually with a single narrow entrance. You've seen these on the History Channel and stuff when they're doing different segments on Neolithic graves in Ireland. And all throughout the UK area, there was a lot of these. Um, The entrance was normally marked by a large cairn, which is a pile or stack of stones that was made by humans. Now, the vantage point and the view were just too powerful for one 18th century man to resist. So he built his home on the hill. He used stones from the cairn and destroyed the cairn. Talk about some bad juju. No kidding, right? You want a haunted house? That's how you get a haunted house. Yep, (laughs) pretty much. Now, many of the locals were terrified that the man had offended the old pagan gods, especially after a powerful storm blew the roof off his new home shortly after construction. So the story goes, in the early 18th century, William Connolly, then the Speaker of the Irish House of Commons, and one of the richest men in Ireland was casting about for a suitably impressive location for an expansive hunting lodge he wanted to build. So south of the city, he found this area that we were talking about, and it it, it, it's just a beautiful area. It overlooks all of that area of Dublin. Great vantage point you can see. The site and the views of Dublin and what convinced Connolly that this was where he wanted to build his new hunting lodge, which was named Mount Pillar. Now, during the construction, the workers stumbled upon this cairn that we were talking about. And there were stones everywhere from this passage tomb, because that's what they did. They drug stones from you know, miles and miles away and piled them up in reverence for who they buried there. So this is a very important thing for the Neolithic people that dude is just tearing down. Um, He, quote, recycled the stones and he used them to build the hunting lodge. Well, reportedly, he put one of the biggest stones, the headstone of that cairn, over the fireplace. So it was basically like one of the standing stones that you would see at like Stonehenge or whatever. Mm-hmm. He used this for the mantle of his fireplace in this hunting lodge. So both the standing stones and the, the cairns were 
known as these ancient grave markers, but Connolly didn't care. He just kept going. Yeah. So, you know, I can just imagine he's standing there admiring his new fireplace. Mm-hmm. And guy standing next to him. He's like, how do you like my new my fireplace? What, what do you think of the mantle? And the guy just going. And it's from a grave, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's from a grave. I don't care. It's a good looking stone. <laughs> it's just, it's like, it sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds like the start of a horror movie. Yeah. You know, it, it you you picture the guy coming in, you know, breaks apart these tombs and all this stuff, builds his house with it. And then immediately after that, well, he's haunted all to hell. And now we got the movie starting, you know, so the foolish man built his house out of a grave. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yep. So shortly after the construction was completed in 1725, this storm that we talked about came through and it blew the roof entirely off of his hunting lodge. Well, all the locals said it was retribution for desecrating that burial site. And I mean, I would think <laughs> be, so. It'd be kind of hard to argue that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just did. I mean, look, if I've got a, if I die and y'all build a cairn for me and I've got this big, impressive area and then some schmuck comes through and puts my headstone on his fireplace. You better believe I'm haunting his butt. <laughs> I'm not letting that go. I'm going to be knocking the roof off every chance I get. <laughs> but they said it was, you know, some it was retribution from the ancient pagan gods of old. Um, some even said that it was possibly Satan himself who was getting retribution. Well, neither of these possibilities really disturbed Connolly at all. He was just oblivious. Um, so he promptly built an arch stone roof for his lodge, again, using stones from the cairn and all around the site. Now, believe it or not, those stones are still standing today. So if you go to the Hellfire Club Mount Pillar area, you can still see those stones hanging out there. So the pagan gods were mad but they were not mad enough to be able to blow off the stones. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess if you're going to do it, they were, they were, they were more just irritated. Yeah. At that point, they were just like, dude, really? All right. We got you. We got your number. We'll get you. We'll leave your roof up, but we're going to get you. <laughs> so believe it or not, Connolly died in 1729. Four years after the completion of this thing. Yeah. So he really didn't get to use it. There's no word on whether it was due to anything suspicious or not. We couldn't find any death records. It's not like 1720s. You really have good death records <laughs> yeah. from that time. They died. But if it were if it were me just making a guess, I would say that that it, it may be under suspicious circumstances. Yeah. I would say, you know, I mean, four years after you build your fancy lodge, you kick the bucket. It's a little suspicious. Well, for several years, Mount Pillar was abandoned for the most part, uh, which really added to the appeal for the Hellfire Club. 
they began renting the hunting lodge from the Connolly family in 1735. Now, the Hellfire Club originated in London in 1719, but King George I quickly outlawed it. But the royal edict was really no hindrance to these entitled rich people that were in the Hellfire Club, and it really didn't stop them from engaging in any of the immoral acts that the Hellfire Club had. So Dublin's Hellfire Club was a place for wealthy young gentlemen to drink, gamble, hire prostitutes, and even allegedly engage in, quote, more degenerate activities like animal torture and Satan worship. Now, their motto was, do what thou wilt. And some of y'all may know that because it was later used by Aleister Crowley himself. Anybody notice that Aleister Crowley has popped up in a lot of our uh, yeah, recent episodes? He has. So that may be a sign that we need to talk about him. He's awful busy these days. He is, man. <laughs> He's getting a lot of play in the graveyard here. So we need to. We might need to look into him. Um, now, one of the Dublin Club founders was a man named Richard Parsons. He was first Earl of... It's R-O-S-S-E, so Rosse, Roche, I'm pronouncing it all wrong, I know, but it's southern tongue. Sorry about mm-hmm. that. He was Grandmaster of the Freemasons of Dublin. So this man is a Grandmaster Freemason, and he founds the Dublin Hellfire Club. Just let that sink in a little bit. He's in one secret society, and he's starting another one. He makes one, one, it's even more secretive. Even more secretive. Um, double secret. Yeah. (laughs) Super double secret. So, also, Sheriff of Dublin, Simon Luttrell, was also a member. Now, the combination of the reportedly cursed location and all of the depraved goings-on from the Hellfire Club quickly led to even wilder stories about the club's activities. So the remoteness of the location meant that few, if any, of the activities could be witnessed or verified, hence why we don't have many stories from them. But that added fuel to the fire for legends about the club. And a lot of the stories that came out from the Hellfire Club actually involved fire. Now, one story states that late one night a priest would, uh, went to the house to see what was really going on. Now, in one version of the story, when he entered the house, the center of attention was a huge black cat with ears so pointed they resembled horns, and he was sitting in the chair reserved for the devil himself, because every meeting they left a chair open in case the devil showed up. I mean, if that's what you're wanting, you better leave a chair open for him. You might get pissed and blow your roof off, but... Yeah, that kind of that that right there isn't an exclusive Hellfire Club thing. I've heard that before with other societies, other societies that would, you know, that they would do things like that. You know, would you you always leave a chair for the devil, right? Something, something along those lines, right? So it it, it it was more of a I don't want to say common practice, but it was for something like this. It was something that you did, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to be in that type of Satan worship and stuff like that, you need to, I mean, it's just. You want him to be comfortable. Right. 
you know. Right. If he's going to show up all the way. He's standing the whole time. He comes from his, his hooves would hurt after he stood for that long. Yeah. You don't so, want to have to put horseshoes on the devil. No, exactly. See, can <laughs> you a, imagine what a crappy job? Can you imagine being the guy who had to shoe the devil? I mean, I had to, I, I haven't shooed a horse before, but I've had to clean out the shoes after rides yeah. several times. So you get up there and you prop that leg up. And I was doing it one time and the little spot, some of y'all are country enough to know this, but the, the little spot in the middle of the horse's hoof is called the frog. And you've got to make sure you don't hit that because it's a nerve bundle. Well, as you're scraping along, you know, you got to go around that and everything to get the dirt out. Well, I missed and I hit that frog. Luckily, the horse was nice enough that it didn't kill me. But I'm squatted down with its leg on my leg and it kicks just enough to throw me against the wall of the stall. Luckily, it didn't make, you know, hard contact with me or I wouldn't be here talking to y'all. Um <laughs> But it was enough to let me know I messed up. So if you can imagine hitting the frog on the devil's hoof, mm-hmm. you're not going to be living yeah, anymore. Right. So, <laughs> sorry, that was a tangent. Frog the devil. Yeah, I just frogged the devil and I ended up here. So, um, so the priest, back to the story, the priest immediately sensed evil when the cat started snarling at him. So he threw holy water on the cat. And the cat turned into this devil-like figure and ran outside, burning down the roof as it left. Now, in another version of the story, the priest finds a black cat that had been sacrificed and exorcised the cat's soul. In a third version of the story, the cat was doused in whiskey and set on fire, and then it ran around setting the Hellfire Club on fire. And there's an often repeated story about the Hellfire Club that's of a guy named Burnchapel Whaley. Now, in 1740, one of the principal members of the club was Richard Chapel Whaley. Now, he was at Montpellier enjoying one of the Hellfire Club's drunken parties. Some say there was a black mass performed by a defrocked priest there, um, but a servant accidentally spilled a drink on him. Now, in retaliation, Whaley doused the man in brandy and set him on fire. As a servant ran through the house, he grabbed a tapestry to try to smother the flames, and eventually the blaze burned the entire lodge. There are tales of black masses and human sacrifices, one which led to the lodge catching on fire and killing several members. There is even a story of the club members kidnapping, killing, and eating a farmer's daughter. Nice. So not only are they, no, that would, you could tell by Matt's tone. He wasn't being serious. Um, (laughs) Not only were they supposedly doing Satan worship practice, but they were kidnapping, killing and eating farmer's daughters. So if this is true, the debauchery in that group is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, these could be just inflated stories. Yeah. Because we don't know for sure, but Matt's got some more stories here in a little bit. But the most famous story involves this mysterious stranger who wandered in one dark, stormy night, because it's always got to be dark and stormy. Yeah, because that's the best time to go do something like this. Exactly. He wandered in one dark and stormy night. Should I keep doing it that way? I'm not going to. No. Um, the stranger joined a card game that was already in progress. 
and at one point a player dropped his card and bent down to look under the table to grab it. Well, as he looked, he glimpsed the stranger's legs and realized that the man had a cloven foot. When the stranger was confronted, he burst into flames and vanished. So, hello, devil, was that you? Well, why would he just burst into flames and vanish? Oh, you figured me out. Yeah, well, they were like, yeah, I'm the devil and I'm here. Give me all your money. Yeah, I mean, that that would, if I was the devil, that's what I'd do. I'd be, you know, like, yeah, and you've been trying to get me this whole time. Here I am. Yeah, I finally show up and this is how I'm treated. Well, yeah, you tra- mocking my cloven hoof. Yeah. We'll see, give you four cloven hooves, you know. I'd turn you into a goat. Exactly, or a <laughs> pig or something. But apparently meetings occurred twice a month um, with one annual meeting that lasted a week or more. And that happened in either June or September. But the members addressed each other's, addressed each other, addressed each other's. Mm-hmm. What am I? I don't know. Each other's what? <laughs> we can't PG show. I can't get into that. But they addressed it on them. Um, <laughs> and they, they addressed each other as brothers and the leader they would call Abbott. Now, during meetings, members supposedly wore ritual clothing which was white pants white jacket and white cap but the abbot wore a red outfit in the same kind of style now legends of black masses and satan or demon worship have become attached to this club um, but a lot of these didn't start getting attached till the 19th century but people say that female guests which was a euphemism for prostitutes were referred to as nuns so in a mocking manner of mm-hmm. the church and mm-hmm. all that, they would consider the prostitutes nuns. And, and sometimes they would have them dress up in the habit and all that just to mock the church. Um, but Dashwood's club meetings often included mock rituals, items of pornographic nature, a lot of drinking and a lot of feasting. So it was just a, you know, rituals of indulgence yeah for these rich people and whether you know whether you want to say they were legitimately trying to con to the devil or not that's whatever but they did have all these indulgent rituals now eventually the hellfire club managed to burn mount pillar so badly that it was unusable from then on Well, they stayed in the area. They moved down the road to the steward's house, also known as the Killikey house. And it was also owned by the Connolly family. And they used the Hellfire Caves. Well, their level of activity kind of waxed and waned throughout the 18th century. And when Thomas Buck Whaley died in 1800, the Hellfire Club, which was at that point known as the Holy Fathers, died with him, supposedly. Because there's, there's some talk about it continuing, moving to the Americas, and, you know, it could still be around today, but we don't know for sure. So, you know, when, when Dashwood, when the caves were completed and, and Dashwood began the meetings there, just out of, you know, Dashwood lived in, in the West Wycombe Manor, and they could travel right there to the caves. And and have their meetings. 
And as Adam mentioned earlier, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a friend of Sir Francis Dashwood. Um, and, and he was even quoted as saying that he, he felt more at home in the manor above and below ground. So indicating that even Benjamin Franklin had ventured into the cave. Right. And as close, uh, as close of a friend as he was with Dashwood, there's no evidence that he was actually a member, but remember that the one of the main purposes of the club was to mock the Church of England. Mm-hmm. And not being English, it really wouldn't be Benjamin Franklin's gig. Right. But wouldn't being, care. being such good friends with Dashwood, he would be more than welcome to sit in on the on the meetings and, and witness and participate in all the crazy goings on. Right. So, Have a little fun. Right. So, you know, the, the caves were, were built and designed specifically for this. I mean, there's, you know, small theaters, there's private caves, there's uh, the inner temple. You know, there are areas that look like they were built for a purpose, and they were. Um, and the caves are still there today. You can visit the caves. The caves have visitors. You can take tours. You can see everything that was there. But when you take into consideration all of the stories that Adam went over about what the Hellfire Club could have possibly been into, you've got to wonder, what did they bring that they could do inside a cave? Right. You know, away from any kind of prying eyes on Dashwood's own private property. I mean, they could have gotten into some serious stuff. No kidding. and a lot of it is documented. We need caves, Matt. Yes, we we need a cave. <laughs> but but a lot of the goings on are are documented. I mean, it, it is documented of, of what went on there. Maybe not in such detail that they're going, and this night we conjured the devil. Right. You know, I mean, but you know, there there's a lot of things and a lot of um a lot of written documents that describe you know, the dress and and the activities and the rituals. But, you know, you can't really have a network of caves constructed by an English baron for his secret club of debauchery and church mocking and paganistic rituals without having some truly odd and fascinating stories of all types. Right. Some of them paranormal, some just interesting, and some are just downright hard to believe. But one of those really weird stories involves club member John Wilkes. Now, John Wilkes decided that he would play a prank on his fellow club members. And he somehow obtained a baboon. Now, how? uh, Yeah. Now, I'm not really sure how one would procure a baboon in modern times. Very carefully. But it's, (laughs) yeah, it seems like... (laughs) In the early 1700s, it would be hard to get your hands on a baboon. Yeah. But as the story goes, Wilkes managed to get his hands on this baboon. And anyway, he took the baboon and dressed it up as the devil. Which you do when you Which have you, a baboon. You know, I mean, what that's else you got to do with a baboon? Practice. There's no other reason to have one. <laughs> so his outfit had it complete with horns and everything. And he put it in a box, and and he headed off to the meeting. This must have been a big box, because baboons are not small. Real quick, I'm thinking about this baboon 
with horns and and all that stuff, and its big red butt <laughs> hanging out of the back of it. It's just, I mean, I can't help but picture that when I think of a baboon as a big red butt. And you think think about a baboon's face, man. It's kind of creepy looking. Yeah, you know. And then you yeah. put horns on that thing. If, if I had to pick an animal, it'd probably be a baboon. Right. Okay. So when everybody was good and drunk. Wilkes decided to let the uh, proverbial baboon out of the box, and uh, it promptly jumped on Lord John Montague, uh, the Earl of Sandwich. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Well, it scared him so bad. He choked on a sandwich. Yes. Oh. Choked on a ham sandwich. <laughs> on his Hellfire Club sandwich. <laughs> That's the origins of that. <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> All right. Good night. Yeah, we'll see. You. <laughs> We're done. We can't. We can't top that. We didn't even try. And yeah. we got to that <laughs> full circle, I'm Matt. You, without trying, we can't write this. No, if we had written that, it wouldn't have. It, it wouldn't, wouldn't have, have gone that well. It wouldn't <laughs> but anyway, so it did. It terrified him, and so he he's like on his knees, crying, confessing all of his sins. Because he thinks the devil is there. Yep. This one time I pooped in a fountain, and I didn't mean to poop in a fountain, but it happened, and then I enjoyed it. <laughs> so I did it again. Yeah, I did it. It was three times total. <laughs> they called me fountain pooper all the way through high school. <laughs> Boy, this has gotten derailed, hasn't it? <laughs> So it's late at night. We're, <laughs> I'm telling you, we're we're much later in the graveyard than we usually yeah, are. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, but you know the, these these Hellfire Club enthusiasts, these these historians that dig back through these records and try to piece together what these meetings were like. They they're kind of thinking that if all they were doing was having you know these orgies and drinking and just general rakish behavior. Why would they believe that the devil appeared? Right. Unless they were doing something meant to bring him there. Right. So maybe maybe they were. Maybe they were trying to do something. I mean, whether or not they were successful, that you know, that remains to be seen. But sure. but if if they were doing rituals that were to bring about the devil, and this guy panics because a baboon jumps on him, dresses the devil, he thinks, oh crap, it's really here. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they were involved. You know, you would if you weren't trying to bring him about. Why would you be afraid that he was there? Yeah, guilty conscience. Yeah. So, you know, touring the caves is an interesting thing. So, as you walk down through the caves, you notice things like strange faces that are carved into the walls, and you can look at these. I mean, you can look at these pictures. Some of them are very um, rudimentary. Some of them are more ornate, but there's a lot of them. And and they all look kind of weird, you know, or or just like in horror. And and so you, you pass these faces, but as you get down even further, you'll find that one of these faces is a card face of the devil himself. So again, some indicator. And I, to me, it's either they were really doing this or they were just trying to portray that they were doing this sure. to, to just... Yeah whip up some excitement about it yeah you know it's fun to tell everybody we're up here doing these devil worshiping rituals Mm -hmm. but you know strange behavior 
often begets even stranger behavior. Sure. So when when club member Paul Whitehead died in 1774, he left something very personal to his dear friend Francis Dashwood. His heart. Aw. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. It couldn't have been like his CD collection or his autographed Steph Curry jersey. Right. No, it's his right. heart. Okay. And apparently he paid him 50 pounds to keep his heart in an urn in the caves. Okay. Shouldn't take more than 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah. So just to make this story even weirder, Dashwood stored Whitehead's heart in an urn and kept it in its own cave in the network of caves. It had, there's, you know, its own private little section and the urn is still there. Okay. Visitors to the cave were allowed to pass the urn around. Really? Yeah. See? Weird behavior? Yep. Becomes even weirder. Okay? Until one day... Hey, uh, look, Ma, a heart. <laughs> shake it. You yeah. know, rattle it up. You can hear it. You can hear it rattling around in there. So one day, an Australian soldier visiting the caves decided that he was just going to take the heart. Not the urn, just the heart. So what did he do? Just pocket it? I guess. I mean, it, surely it was shriveled up by then. Yeah. You know, it looked like a chicken heart, all yeah. petrified <laughs> right. in there. He just like pitched it in his hand and shoved it in his pocket. Anyway, he took it and left the urn. So that's why I said the urn is still there, but Whitehead's heart is not. You know, because, you know, why not? Just take it. You said that was an Australian tourist? Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. About 150 years ago. Yeah. Took it. Okay. You Australians are crazy. <laughs> Even 150 years ago. We love you, but y'all are crazy. Do? What would you do with it? I don't know. Maybe he's going to eat it. Hey, there you know. So so staff and visitors alike have witnessed the appar- apparition of an older gentleman wandering the caves dressed in period dress. Now, it is presumed that this is the ghost of Paul Whitehead looking for his missing heart. Okay. Now, Susie Carter, a former tour guide in the caves, witnessed an old man walking up one side of the tunnels only to turn around and walk back down the other side. Now, the tunnels were closed at this time and there was no one else around. So seeing somebody walking from down deeper in the tunnels was a little weird. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And. Others have attributed poltergeist-like activity to Whitehead's ghost, including growls, touching, objects being thrown, and this general feeling of unease that you get as you travel deeper into the caves. Now, probably one of the most common ghost stories that you hear from inside the caves is that of Suki. And it's not not the character from True Blood. Dang it. <laughs> Adam pulled that on me the other night. <laughs> Now, she's sometimes described as the white lady or the lady in white, but she's generally known by her name, and her name was Suki. Now, Suki was a chambermaid or a barmaid or waitress, if you want to use a modern term, at the local Georgian Dragon, which was a pub which still exists today. In fact, there are several around the United States that are made after it. They're the Georgian Dragon. Yeah. Um, I think there's one in Phoenix, Arizona, and there's two or three others. But anyway, um, so Suki had kind of, you know, taken a shine to a, a wealthy fellow that would travel back and forth from London and Oxford. 
and he always made it a point to stop at the Georgian Dragon. Now, some local boys decided that they kind of liked Suki too, and so they they would flirt with her, they would come by to see her, but she rebuffed them every time because her heart belonged to another. Well, now, these local boys, they got jealous, and so they decided they were going to they were going to pull a little prank on old Suki. So they, one night they, they sent her a note signed from this, this wealthy traveler pre- pretending to be him. Now it asked her to meet him in the caves so that they could elope. Now just filled with joy, Suki arrived at the caves later that night dressed in her wedding gown. Now as she ventured into the caves, she began to hear the same local boys laughing in the distance. Now, she was pretty hot about this. Sure. So Suki began to shout and throw gravel at them. Now, the boys retaliated, throwing much heavier stones. One of those stones struck Suki in the head, and it killed her. Okay. Jeez. Now, Suki's ghost has often been seen in the banquet hall wearing her white Victorian wedding dress. Now, visitors often report hearing screams and the sound of crying. Other visitors have also experienced uh, being pelted with gravel. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I said. So, Suki's appearances are so common that reports of seeing the lady in white average about 20 per year. That's crazy. That's a lot. That's crazy. I mean, you know, for... For somebody to have an experience at a, a quote-unquote haunted location, you know, that's not unheard of. But to actually have witness what is the the famous ghost of a place, 20 times a year, hell, 20 times, period, would be a lot. Right. 20 times a year, that that's remarkable. Okay? So, um and like I said, she she's the most famous ghost there, and for good reason. She's apparently the most active one. Yeah, you know, she's not ever gotten over this. Now, Vicky Swallow, who is the manager of the caves, has reported hearing growls while working in the inner temple. Now, although she says she doesn't get scared while she's in the caves, Vicky and the other employee with her say that they when they heard the growl. They promptly began singing holy songs as they quickly made their way up to the surface. Seems like a good idea. Yeah. Now, Julianne Barlow, who is the assistant manager of the caves, reports that the sighting of lights and orbs are also very common near the entrances of the tunnels. Now, Julianne believes that these may be the spirits of children. Now, the orbs will tend to show up in photographs of younger visitors. Hmm. So, and there, there's a photograph of a child taken just outside the entrance to the caves and there's an orb behind him. And so apparently this is pretty common, which makes her kind of think that the orbs are drawn to the energy that children bring when they visit the caves. Right. Um, other visitors has reported seeing strange lights and shapes that move about in the network of tunnels only to disappear when they're approached. Now, other sightings include that of an old man who appears to be wandering around the caves alone. Now, one story is that of a gentleman who was visiting the caves and wandered a little too far only to find out that he was lost. Uh Uh-oh. Okay? Now, listen. I don't ever want to be lost in a cave. Mm -hmm. If, if If I'm going on a tour and I'm in a cave, 
I'm I'm not gonna wander off. No, you know, this is like I I watched one of those videos when we were doing the Paris Catacombs thing, yep. and these dudes getting lost in there. Okay, I, I'm like getting panicked for yes. them. Yes, yeah, high okay. anxiety. Uh-uh. So I'm not wandering off, but this guy did. He he didn't do what my mother always told my sister and I whenever we went on a trip, like a field trip or whatever. Stay with your group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yep. good, it's good advice. It is good <laughs> Stay advice. Stay with your group. Now, the gentleman came across this this old man who was kind of friendly, you know, and he thought, well, he must be a guide. And the old man kind of motioned for him to follow him. So this gentleman followed the old man all the way back to the surface. When they got to the entrance, the old man kind of stepped aside and and extended his arm as if to say, please go ahead, exit before me. So when the man exited, he turned around and the old man was gone. Wow. Yeah. So, you know... That's the kind of spirit you want to run into. Yeah, that's right. You know, helpful and friendly. Yeah. You know, but apart from these resident ghosts, there are a lot of people that believe that these rituals that were performed by Dashwood and the the Hellfire Club were not just in jest, that these ritual sacrifices were made, possibly even human, and that they could have summoned something that's way darker than friendly ghosts that lead visitors to the entrance or, Mm -hmm. you know, scorned women who throw gravel at people, you know? So there's a lot of, a lot of belief that something demonic resides down in those caves. It's possible. There's, there's really no evidence that anything just horrific or dangerous has happened as a result of something paranormal in the caves. But so many people report having this just odd feeling. Dizziness is another thing that a lot of people report. You know, they get down in the, and I can kind of, I can kind of see that because the fact that you're way underground, right. just talking about it makes That's me kind of disorienting. Go, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not exactly claustrophobic, but I don't like to think that there's not a way out and that could probably make you a little dizzy. Sure. Um, but, you know, that that's a common thing with uh, haunted locations is just, you know, people feeling nauseated or dizzy or mm-hmm. weak or things like that. So, okay, maybe, you know, I, I could I could probably see where that would be true. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's an interview um, with uh, our old buddy, Zach Bagans, mm. talking to um, uh, a local guy who. His description is that you feel the energy below your feet, that when you're standing up, you know, on those grounds that you, you feel something, you know, almost what he describes as your feet tingling. And, and he says, now this is not Zach. This is a, a local guy. He says that he feels the same thing at Stonehenge, that you just feel this energy, you know, emitting from the ground. Right. And, and if you, if you believe that Stonehenge was some kind of like, you know, pagan antenna, you know, for rituals or whatever to, to bring in energy, to draw energy. And, you know, you start looking at things like the ley lines and everything, you know, and now you've got people that are saying, I feel the same thing when I'm here. It makes you wonder, did, did they conjure something? Yeah. You know, they were obviously doing some things that even if they, 
didn't think this would work. It's to me, that's the equivalent of playing with a Ouija board. Sure. You know, Oh, it's just a game. It's not real. And then next thing you know, you know, Zozo's knocking on your door. Yep. Uh Oh yeah. And, and so Maybe it was a situation like this. Maybe they thought it was all fun and games. It's a reason for us to bring prostitutes down here and have these huge outlandish parties and get totally drunk and do whatever else we want and pretend we're worshiping the devil. And, you know, maybe we kill a few cats and, you know, maybe we screw up and we, you know, we, we kill, you know, one of our, one of our guests, you know, and I'm, I'm not making light of that, but I mean, it's the 1700s. I mean, you know, a wealthy guy kills a, you know, a common woman, you know, it, they just kind of brush it under the rug. Yeah. I mean, it was just the way things were. Maybe they did bring something through. Maybe. And, and maybe it's stuck down in those caves. And maybe it's just to the point where it just it just wants to make itself known. You know, it, it doesn't want to harm anybody. It'd probably rather you didn't go down there. But after a while, maybe it just, I'm going to do something that's going to make you leave. Yep. Um, but what do you believe? I mean, this is we're talking about, you know, essentially a, a secret society that very little is known, but mm-hmm. the evidence that they existed and the, some of the things that they did is there. And, you know, if, if Dashwood was just building a fancy boys club, he, he sure did do it in a very strange way. Right. Um, to, to dig an entire network of caves strictly to go have a party there. I mean, come on. There's easier ways. There's a lot easier ways. I mean, he was wealthy. He could have built a whole other house Mm -hmm. and done it. I mean, he could have done anything. Why the caves? Mm -hmm. You know, why be underground to do these kind of things? Makes you wonder, you know, why have a, you know, essentially a flowing river underneath and, you know, it's the river sticks. I mean, they had to take a boat to get to the inner temple. You don't anymore, Mm -hmm. but they did then because of the amount of water that was down there. I mean. You know, it's really, it's really strange. I mean, it's very, very interesting. And the, the people that were known members of this club were, they were not just rich folks. They were influential members of society. I mean, right. like we said at the beginning, Dashwood was a member of parliament. Mm-hmm. The, the Earl, the fourth Earl of Sandwich was a member. Mm-hmm. Which sounds crazy to the say. The grandmaster of the... The funk. The Grandmaster of the Masons. Oh, yeah. Was a member. Yeah. So, I mean, th- these people, they not only had money, they had power and they had influence. Mm-hmm. You know, so this was not just a, a bunch of guys just deciding, hey, let's just hang out. You know, we'll, we'll play some games. We'll do some weird stuff. We'll bring some prostitutes over. It, it'll be fun. There was something way more. They were doing they something. There was something way more to this. Right. It was way more. I, I feel like, you know, whether or not they were successful, who knows? But, you know, it's, it, the, the history is there to make right. you think, sure. yeah, they, they, they were up to something. So, like we said, what do you guys think? Do any of y'all live near, you know, Mount Pillar or the, the Hellfire Caves or anything like that? Have any of y'all taken a tour? Do y'all believe something really did go on? with the hellfire club or do you think it's all hyped up legend from you know a fancy boys club um let us know hit us up on facebook or twitter or instagram or just email us or hit us up on our website you can drop a a note to us on the website we get a lot of messages that way and it 
shoots it over to our email. So just hit us up and let us know what you think. Yeah, and the website is graveyardpodcast.com. And among contacting us, you can you can take a look at some pictures of us. You can learn more about us. Um, you can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, and you can become a patron. Um, please go and rate and review us on iTunes. I know we, we say this just about every show, but it is the easiest way to bring more people into the graveyard. If you haven't already, check out our Facebook group. Uh, just search for Graveyard Tales on Facebook. It, it is an amazing community of people. We have a great time. We cut up, we laugh, but you know, I, I'm reading stories pretty much on the daily where people are having something that they just don't know how to deal with and they don't know who they can talk to, but it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. You can ask for advice and you're going to get it. And, uh, you know, Adam and I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. Our and members are great. It's fantastic. So, so guys, thank you so much for listening and until next time. We'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Mm-hmm.